So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Father, we give you thanks for your words to us this morning, your revelation of your heart for your people, your heart for justice, to defend those that you love, uh, to hold accountable those who do evil. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus um, who covers our own uh, evil, who makes us new, who makes us your sons and your daughters. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so as we conclude this uh, series in Joel, we we look and, and see how Joel wants his audience to be convinced of something very, uh, very compelling uh, and, and very heart um, uh, emboldening is to know that the Lord dwells in Zion. God has uh, favored his people. He's drawn near to them and included them. And you know, that's, that's his promise to us twice here at the end of, of Joel, that the Lord dwells in Zion. We also know uh, from, from other places in Joel and other prophets that the Lord roars from Zion, you know, his, the power of his voice and the strength and the justice that emanate from his throne, the Lord roars from Zion, and the Lord comforts Zion. So he defends Zion, he comforts Zion, he dwells in Zion. Let's talk about Zion. Uh, maybe that's a new word for some of you. If you're new to the church or to the Bible, maybe you've heard of Zion or Zionism or things like that, but um, what is it? Where is it? And, uh, and I think it'd be good for us to, to look at these things because they show up all over the Bible. Uh, Zion is, is, is all over Scripture. It's the place fundamentally, as we see in Joel, where God dwells. It's his home. It's his house. Uh, God's home is in Zion. It's the center uh, of his kingdom. Uh, it's the uh, source of his uh, blessings. It's where his law uh, emanates from, it's also, uh, he, uh, he gives the title Zion to the collection of his people. It's, it's multifaceted, it's a jewel with uh, a lot of angles to it. So it's not just one-dimensional, but we see a lot of different things that are communicated. But fundamentally, when God says that he dwells in Zion, it means, um, it's the, well, the, the word dwell is the same word that we get the word tabernacle uh, from. It just means that he makes his home there. A lot of times you, you see it's referred to as a mountain. Um, we see that here uh, in verse 17. God dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And I think probably you're familiar with, with that imagery just in lots of different religious traditions. 
that the deity or deities you know, dwell on high, they're on Mount Olympus, uh, you know, pyramids and ziggurats were these efforts on behalf of the people to, to, to ascend uh, into, you know, the God or God's presence. Uh, so when the Bible talks about God dwelling on Zion or dwelling on my holy mountain or my holy hill, uh, it's not saying that he's one of many gods and every, you know, the gods just, you know, like the view. Uh, no, it, the other religions are basically taking a page. You know, they're, they're, they're borrowing from what uh, God has revealed throughout Scripture, throughout, you know, uh, history, is that he is high and, and lifted up and that we are separate and other from him. And so there's this gap, there's a separateness, and just we naturally uh, think of that in terms of, of space, you know. We think of that geographically. He's high, he's up there. And if we're going to get to him, we have to ascend. Thus the mountain, thus the hill, thus the temple, thus the pyramids, and and, and so on. So um, Zion is referred to as a mountain. It's referred to as a city. It's referred to as a country. It's Jerusalem. It's Judah. It's, you know, it's, it, it's all these composite uh, images. And we see that here, not only in verse 17, but in verses 20 and 21, Judah shall be inhabited forever. Jerusalem to all generations for the Lord dwells in Zion. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, Psalm 2 reminds us. So Get that, you know, kind of geographical picture in your head. And then we have to ask the question, well, what is Zion? Not only where is it, but, but what is it? Um, like I said, it's mentioned all over the Bible. You can't read the Bible and not come across the word Zion. The first place it shows up is in the story of King David. And 2 Samuel Chapter 5, uh, it says that David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. We call it Jerusalem now. So what, uh, what you know, too, from just watching the news, and, and you know, literally it's been decades and, and centuries of news from that region, is that Zion is, some, is, a, is a, uh, you know, Jerusalem's this geographical piece of property that is in uh, much debate about who has rights to it. Is it the Jewish community? Is it the Muslim community? Is it the Christian community? Jerusalem's this holy city, right? And, and, and there's a thing called Zionism uh, that our dispensational brothers and sisters in that tradition uh, think, think very highly of, of this notion that in, in the Jewish community, Zionism became popular from after all the Jewish people had been basically scattered uh, all, all points of the planet. And then they wanted to return. They wanted their own country because they didn't have a country anymore. And so back in the 19th century, there was this movement to establish a new geopolitical nation of Israel. Uh, Britain got involved. Uh, Great Britain got involved. And at one point, there was proposed it would be in Uganda, you know, 200 or however many square miles of unpopulated part of Uganda. And then, no, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, especially in the, in the wake of World War I and, and the atrocities, and then, of course, World War II, just this momentum kept gaining for Israel to have its own nation. And then on May 14, 1948, in Tel Aviv, the nation of Israel was reconstituted. And 
so the Jewish community worldwide is celebrating, and then there's a bunch of people in the Christian community that are celebrating worldwide because from their vantage point reading Scripture, and some of you come out of this, this tradition, some of you may still, you know, this is still what you believe, and, and I want to respect that. I'm going to respectfully di- differ in just a second. You'll, you'll hear more about that. But, but the whole thinking is that, you know, what God has promised in this, you know, dispensation that's going to come, the millennium, that uh, everything's going to be reestablished on earth and Christ is going to return for this thousand-year reign and the temple's going to be rebuilt and Israel's going to rise to prominence again and Jerusalem's going to have its grandeur and its, its holiness that will, you know, exceed that of David's realm, etc. So there's a lot of hope in this. I mean, to be, to be candid, there's a lot of politics involved in how you read your Bible. A lot of politics. Um, we're not going to go there. And, uh, and the point of this passage is not to, to you know, talk about this millennial perspective or that. And, uh, and I know some of these have even been recent conversations, and I promise this, this, this is just here because we're talking about Zion. Anyway, um, let, me, let me just make a couple of observations. I'm going to ask you to hang in there, especially if, this, if I'm picking on you this morning. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. But I want to let you know how we're looking at the Bible and our tradition. And in 1 Peter 2, you get Peter writing to, uh, it's a circular letter, and he's writing to mostly non-Jewish people. Um, Gentiles, you know, is how they are referred to in the New Testament. And, and, he, and he uses all kinds of language that, that describes them in the same way that the Jewish people would identify. He calls them the, the, the diaspora. They've been dispersed. You know, that was a Jewish uh, label. Uh, and he talks to them and says that they're a holy priesthood. That's a Jewish label. Um, he says that they have been, uh, they're offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. And then he quotes uh, this passage about Jesus, this prophecy that Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's just Zion language ascribed to Jesus in this letter written to Gentiles. And you wonder, well, how, what in the, why are we using all this Jewish language to describe you know, something that the Gentiles are experiencing? And then Peter says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people uh, for God's own possession, that, that you are now God's people uh, once you were not a people. Now you've received mercy once you had not received mercy. So pointing out this passage and others to illustrate that Zion is God's people collected. It's where he dwells in their midst. And isn't that kind of remind you of something that we celebrate here at Tabernacle Presbyterian Church? Like it's a church. Um, Israel's hope, uh, this is Anthony Hokema, scholar and uh, just brilliant, brilliant um, writer, says Israel's hope for the future is exactly the same as that of believing Gentiles. Salvation and ultimate glorification through faith in Christ. The future of Israel is not to be seen in terms of a political kingdom in Palestine lasting a thousand years, but in terms of everlasting blessedness shared with all the people of God on a glorified new earth. The whole point of the gospel, as Paul tells the Ephesians, is that what, when Jesus came, he abolished the dividing wall of hostility. 
He lays this out in Ephesians 2, explaining that once there was this you know, barrier and divide between Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus, because of his blood, has removed that barrier and made the two one. Out of the two, he's made a, a new humanity. Uh, this is where God dwells. God still dwells in Zion, and Zion is the church. We are Zion. We are his holy nation. We are his royal priesthood. We are his possession. And so, therefore, it's not you know, choosing Gentiles or the Jews, it's a whole third new humanity made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's what we believe the gospel is teaching us. And we, you know, are going to, again, respectfully disagree with those who think that God has two different tracks that he's running on, one Jewish, one Gentile. All right, so that's the Lord dwelling in Zion. And you can't kind of not talk about that if we're going to, you know, see what Joel's emphasizing at the end of his prophecy. There's something else I want you to see, and that's that the Lord roars from Zion. Uh, Verses 19 to the end are talking uh, in a minor key, right, about Egypt and Edom, how they'll become a desolation and a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah. God is going to avenge their blood or acquit their blood guilt. Um, he is going to do this on behalf of his people because the Lord dwells among his people. The Lord dwells in Zion. And so God promises that he's going to hold accountable people who do violence, right? For those who harm the innocent. And in the most egregious cases, God's going to avenge the blood of those who are the victims. And that ought to make us you know, shudder for the fate of those who perpetrate that kind of harm, like that kind of violence, like shedding innocent blood, and especially ought to make us shudder for those acting either on their own behalf or as the, the leaders of armies in our current geopolitical culture. You need to take Joel chapter 3 seriously. God says he's going to avenge the blood of the innocent. Um, We missed a section of Joel uh, because I I had to be away um, a couple of weekends ago. But verses 11 through 16 talk about, in very similar language to verse 19, how God's going to judge all the surrounding nations. Uh, It's language that the rest of Scripture borrows, especially Revelation, about putting in the sickle and harvesting and treading the winepress of God's wrath because their evil is great in this valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And it ends with how the sun and the moon are are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining because the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. The Lord's a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So, God's going to hold accountable those who shed innocent blood. And yet, even those with blood on their hands can be forgiven. Otherwise, what's the hope or the incentive for anyone to change, to repent? and to turn from their violence or to turn from the harm that they're doing? What hope does any person who knows that they're guilty have unless there was the promise of forgiveness? 
And in, if I can be more specific, how, you know, are any of us truly innocent? Like, I mean, I do sincerely hope that there's nobody here who's actually shed innocent blood, but maybe, I don't know. But I do know that every single person in here has done harm to innocent people. We do it with our words, right? To people who don't deserve the, the angry things that we say, the hurtful words that come out of our mouths, they're innocent and we're just kind of going off. What about our actions, our, our lack of actions, our passivity that brings harm to people because we haven't stepped in or because, you know, maybe we have stepped in in ways that are hurtful where our temper's got the best of us. And Jesus even goes to the heart of things by addressing our hearts. He says, you know, you don't even have to say anything. You don't even have to do anything. You can just think something violent, and the Lord considers it murder. So Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to, to equip our blood guilt. I mean, this is what Joel's talking about, that God's going to uh, you know, exact his justice on those who shed innocent blood. And yet we look at Jesus, and that's exactly what happened to him. He was innocent. His blood was shed, but it was on purpose in order to provide an atoning sacrifice, not only for those who shed innocent blood and who turn from that and repent of that and ask God for forgiveness, but for everybody who has done harm to anyone, who has sinned against another human being, who has sinned against another image bearer of, the, of, of God. And we know we're guilty, and God provides Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for all who lament and repent and come to him for forgiveness. Have you done that? If you haven't, the Lord roars from Zion. And Peter talks about a day, the day of the Lord that will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Our hearts will be exposed. You need God's grace and forgiveness if you don't have it yet. Go to Jesus. Come to him. Because the promise for those who repent and, and lament and go to Jesus is that we would be glad rather than guilty. We would be glad instead of guilty. If you've got your, your Bibles open to Joel, go back to chapter 2. We covered these verses before, but it says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, who has saved you, Right? And that's really just a, another way of rephrasing verse 18 here in chapter 3. In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. This picture of gladness and restoration, even for the guilty who have nonetheless repented and have been forgiven and pardoned. Um, Cornelius Plantinga describes this as shalom, universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a, a rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires 
joyful wonder uh, in its creator and savior um, as he opens the door and welcomes everybody in whom he delights. Shalom, in, the other, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Instead, we look around at a world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Shalom restores all that. So if, let me kind of go circle back one more time to what is Zion? And I, I want to, again, be respectful, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push a little bit here. If, if you read the Bible and you see two different people groups, Israel and the Gentiles, Israel and the church, and if those are two different plans that God has, instead of one plan, which is just the church, you know, Jews and Gentiles brought together under Christ, if you've got two different tracks that are being laid, then can I tell you something? We're... We're reading somebody else's mail right now. And that gladness, that's not your gladness. That joy, that's not your joy. That's Jewish joy, that's Jewish gladness. It's not the church's gladness. There's a lot at stake here. So it's worth thinking, praying, studying, and, and getting to the bottom of this. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw my lot in with Zechariah you know, another one of the minor prophets. He says, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, that bride descending out of heaven, dressed as a bride beautifully for her husband where the dwelling of God is going to be on earth again. The tabernacle, revelation, that hope that we're all looking forward to, the new heaven and the new earth where the Lord will comfort Zion. Um, Isaiah says, the Lord comforts Zion. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Um, can, I, can I tell you that regardless of what kind of end times camp you're in, or whether you're a dispensationalist or not, or whatever, you, you, you've never even heard of that word, and you don't know what I'm talking about. Let me just tell you that I think everybody that believes in Jesus, we're all at the heart of the heart Zionists. We're all Zionists. And that's why I think that's one thing that I want to I point out, that where our dispensationalist brothers and sisters have it right, is that they believe that Zion is real. It's a real place. It's a real mountain. Just like we believe that the new heaven and new earth are real, that, that eternity is not spent in a disembodied state where we just strum these harps on billowy clouds. No, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where creation itself is going to be redeemed, creation that groans and longs for restoration. That wish is going to be granted. It's not just spiritual for eternity spiritual and physical. Sometimes, you know, our tradition, we seem more Zen than Christian because we're just kind of like, oh, it's just all spiritual. Jesus has a material, physical body in heaven right now. And that's what we're looking forward to. Hebrews 12 says that we've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to, to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the meteor of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, that these, these physical and spiritual realities 
that truly are the Christian hope. Not just physical, not just spiritual, but both. And so Zion's real. The kingdom of God is real. It's spiritual and material. Uh, that's why, by the way, you've got 20 bucks in your bulletin. Go and make the kingdom of God real and concrete and physical and tangible to your friends or your neighbors. Go do something to bless them in a real way and show them that, yeah, when Jesus came, he came to touch people, to fill them, to heal them, and to show them that his kingdom is real. Zion is real. Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor or heavy laden, I'll give you rest. When he was in the upper rim at the Last Supper, um, he was talking to the disciples and he said, you know, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Philip says, I don't know. We don't even know where you're going. How do we know the way? He was, Jesus had been explaining how he, had, he was going to go and prepare a place for them. That uh, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would, I not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to that place. Only that's not what he said. Sorry, I paraphrased. He said, if I go, I will come again and I will take you not to that place I'm preparing. He said, I will come again and I will take you to myself. We did that series um, about the, the I am statements, right? Good shepherd and the door and the bread of life and the water of life. You can almost imagine Jesus saying, I am Zion. Come to him. He's the place where God dwells. He's the place where we experience God's fullness. Ultimately, we don't come to a geo, geographic location or even a bunch of people. We come to a person. Jesus is our Zion. He told the religious leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus is that temple. People came to the temple to worship God, but now we go to Jesus. People came to Jerusalem because it was the epicenter of God's kingdom. Now we go to Jesus. People came to the kingdom of God to get God's blessings. Now we get those from Jesus. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus, uh, for Zion among us, for the dwelling of God to come and, and tabernacle among us. Lord, we pray that you would, uh, regardless of our you know, eschatological perspectives and, and interpretations, Lord, that we could agree that our focus and our, 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 our point of worship is Christ, who came to take our sins away, to forgive us, to teach us to not only lament the brokenness outside in the world, but the brokenness inside us, uh, to teach us to repent and to receive your forgiveness so that we might know your joy and your gladness. Lord, please make that more and more true of us as a church, that we would know your presence among us, that we would know your comfort, that we would know your love, and that we would be conduits of that comfort and love in really practical, concrete ways. Lord, we pray uh, for some of the, for all of the families, but in particular, a few of these, these families. Uh, this